Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Thursday before Christmas. So happy to have you on board. Do you have all of your shopping done? Maybe you're listening to this program while you are doing your last-minute Christmas shopping. I hope so. And if so, I am definitely with you in spirit. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Check me out on social media. On Instagram, I am at Monica Crowley underscore. And on Twitter and True Social, I am at Monica Crowley. Also by email, I am at Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. All right, next week is a holiday week, as I mentioned on Tuesday. We've got big shows lined up for next week uh, because the news never stops, so we don't stop. Next week, you are going to want to be here because the day after Christmas, we're going to talk to Lee Strobel. Lee was a guest with us, I guess, earlier this year. I think it was around Easter time because Lee is famous for being an atheist who found God and found Jesus. And he wrote the famous book, The Case for Christ. Lee was a longtime journalist, I think, with the Chicago Tribune. Um, so he was a real skeptic and kind of, uh, you know, a real like old school journalist who simply didn't believe in God, it just rejected the existence of God. And he went about trying to prove that, you know, Jesus, God wasn't real because that's what he believed. And he ended up proving the exact opposite about Jesus. So his story became like a famous story because he wrote a book, which then became a very well-known movie called The Case for Christ. Now he's got a new book out with an even bigger question. It's called, Is God Real? And he's going to join us the day after Christmas to break down what he found He looks for real empirical evidence as to the existence of God. We all take it on faith. Those of us who believe, we take it on faith. We see signs. I mean, I I know I do. And when you pray, sometimes you hear from God, sometimes you don't, but that doesn't mean he's not working in your life. Anyway, the big existential question, is God real? That's what he takes on in his new book. So we are going to break it all down uh, next week, and you're not going to want to miss that. Because obviously, if we're talking about the existence of God, I need to ask Lee Strobel the alien question. So yes, we're going to get into the big stuff, obviously, about God and the world. Um, But I'm also going to have to ask him about the aliens from outer space question, because that has huge theological implications, right? Because if you think human beings are unique... Uh, God's creation as a unique force in the world, well, then what does that mean for belief in God if God also created alien life forms? So we're going to get into all of that and so much more with Lee Strobel. Also next week, uh, we're going to talk to Ben Stein. Ben Stein is a famous economist, but he's also a game show host, host of Win Ben Stein's Money, and he is an actor very famous actor. In fact, his scenes in Ferris Bueller's Day Off playing the monotone teacher, Bueller, Bueller, anyone, Bueller. 
<laughs> those scenes are considered in the top 10 uh, great comedic performances. So Ben Stein's going to be here. He's got a new book on President Nixon. And he knew him. His father was Nixon's top economic advisor in the White House. And of course, I worked for President Nixon during the last years of his life. So Ben Stein and I are going to have one hell of a conversation. That's coming up next week as well. You are not going to want to miss a second of the Monica Crowley podcast during the holiday week. We don't take a break here on the Monica Crowley show. We continue to deliver the best content, right? Okay, later today, speaking of, we're going to have a little festive holiday fun and cheer by talking to our friend Raymond Arroyo, who's got a new Christmas album out. We're going to have a great time talking to him. He is hilarious. He is so much fun. He's going to join us here in just a couple of minutes. But first, the Monica Memo. A scene from the sitcom Friends. I want to frame the big serious issues that we are going to talk about with the weaponization of our government and the courts by invoking one of my favorite scenes from Friends. So Friends is a classic comedy, and I know there are a lot of haters out there, including Elon Musk, who who has tweeted, Friends, I don't get it, not funny. Okay, he has his opinion, I have mine. I think Friends is one of the great sitcoms, okay? All six characters were, of course, brilliant and brilliantly written, But Ross and Rachel were kind of the core of the show. Will they or won't they? The unrequited love, then they finally get together. And then there are all these obstacles. And the the show really kind of rotated around Ross and Rachel. So finally, Ross and Rachel get together, they're dating, and then Rachel gets her dream job at Bloomingdale's. And like many dream jobs, it takes a lot of your time and your energy and your attention away from your previous life, including your significant other. So there's a big strain on the relationship and Ross is getting more and more pissed off and there's a whole like tension building in the relationship. Finally, they have a blowout fight and they decide to go on a break. So they take a break and in that period of time, I think it's like a week, two weeks or something, Ross, who's completely distraught because Rachel is the love of his life, um, in a moment of desperation, sleeps with another woman. He sleeps with the coffee barista, okay? And Rachel finds out and there's a whole big blow up. We were on a break. Okay. Finally, they get back together And they're kind of lying there after having uh, made up and a little makeup sex. And Rachel says to him, well, I, you know, everybody was skeptical that we'd be able to overcome this and get back together. And Ross says, really? Why? And she says, well, my mother was all once a cheater, always a cheater. And of course, that really ticks off Ross. The reason I'm relating this story about friends to you is to frame our big conversation about the left and about the Democrats. Once a cheater, always a cheater. The Democrats have been rigging and stealing elections for a long time, decades, maybe longer. The only way they can win anything is by cheating. Rigging the system. This is why they have sought total power 
power and control. This is why they have spent decades seizing the reins of power. Because they know they cannot win any other way. They cannot win on their ideas. They cannot win on their policies. They cannot win on their politics. They can only win by cheating. Once a cheater, always a cheater. So, yes, we have talked about the 2020 election and what they did there and how it's going to spill over into next year. But one of the big levers that they are using to cheat this time is this lawfare against President Trump. But it's really so much bigger than that because we're talking about the widespread weaponization of our government and our court system. The left cannot cheat through lawfare without having corrupt judges in place, corrupt juries in place, an entire corrupt judicial ecosystem around all of these cases. Now, every once in a while, you get a judge who is normal and unbiased and is applying the law, like the judge in Florida on the bogus Trump uh, classified documents case. But all of these judges that we're seeing dealing with the Trump uh, cases, these legal uh, smears and attacks that have been brought against him by Joe Biden, by the left, by Merrick Garland, by Jack Smith, by all of these people, they're coming up in a fundamentally corrupt court system. Again, not every judge and not every part of the country, but where we're seeing these court cases... I'm telling you, you've got corruption to the nth degree. The judiciary is supposed to be independent. This is why so many judges, like look at the Supreme Court, appointed for life. Appointed for life because they're not supposed to be subjected to the political winds. They're only supposed to look at the law, deliver due process, and an equal application of the law. Justice is supposed to be blind. But like everything else in this country, it has been shot through with corruption. We talk about the indoctrination going on in our schools and universities. It is churning out, especially law students. The whole legal education process is so far left, radicalized, shot through with activism, not the law. And so these law schools, especially the top ones, but really all law schools are churning out law students who then take the bar and now they're practicing attorneys and then they they move up the ranks and then they become judges and district attorneys and everything else. And they are radical communists. Again, not all of them, but these law schools are churning out hundreds and thousands every single year of radical communist Marxist activists joining the bar, and then they end up on the bench, or they end up being prosecutors that are completely rogue and only operating on a far-left Marxist agenda. Very, very dangerous for our system. Our system is hanging by a thread. But again, the left knows that they cannot win without this stuff, without seizing total control over the levers of power and then abusing that power against you and me. Do you want to know how powerful Donald Trump is? How much of a threat he is to this whole corrupt system? He is so powerful And he is such a threat to them and it 
that the regime operatives are actually willing to burn down the system to stop him. And actually, that's their whole objective anyway, burn down the system. Revolutionaries are always so much better about destroying than they are about creating. Revolutionaries are about destroying the existing order in order to create chaos and destabilization. And then they think, well, then once the existing order is destroyed, then we can rebuild it as a a Marxist model with, of course, us at the top but they really suck at the rebuilding. So the revolutionaries come in, they destroy everything good, they destroy the existing structures, and then everybody is left with chaos and violence and poverty. This is a lesson of decades of communism wherever it's, it's uh, tried. Death, destruction, poverty, and total power and control at the very top among a very few number of people who have absolute and total control. So the point is to burn down the system. So let me rephrase. They don't care that they're burning down the system. Burning down the system is their objective. And when it comes to Trump, it is so much bigger than Trump. This is about what he represents, and what he represents is America first. He represents you and me. He represents the average American who loves their country and wants to restore it back to its foundational greatness. The Constitution, all of the freedoms therein, limited government, fiscal responsibility, a strong military, strong presidential leadership, decency, free market capitalism, all of those things are enemies to them. So therefore, Donald Trump is the ultimate enemy to them because he represents the system that they are trying to tear down. And they're having great success. Just look at what happened earlier this week with the Colorado Supreme Court. Colorado Supreme Court disqualified President Trump from the primary ballot in the state of Colorado because they pulled something out of thin air. They said, well, he is guilty of insurrection based on the 14th Amendment. Therefore, he is not qualified according to the 14th Amendment for the presidency. He is disqualified from being president based on that. Now, guys, he was never convicted of insurrection. That charge of insurrection was never brought against him. Not by Congress, not by Jack Smith, not by Merrick Garland. No one has brought a charge, a formal charge of insurrection against Donald Trump. Even when they had the opportunity to do so, they did not. Because they know it wasn't an insurrection. It was a Fedsurrection. And they're the ones that created the pretext to go after Trump for exactly this. You realize that, right? January 6th was a completely bogus insurrection created by the federal government, created by the FBI. We're getting reams and reams of evidence out of this by like Congressman Clay uh, Higgins, who is a former sheriff who now shows buses were brought in of FBI and other Fed operatives into the crowd on January 6th to get everybody riled up and wave them into the Capitol and then get them panicked and acting out and all of it. It was a frame up to make this exact argument 
that Donald Trump inspired the insurrection. Therefore, he is guilty of insurrection. Therefore, he is barred from being president, according to the 14th Amendment. 14th Amendment has never been adjudicated. Okay, there, there is no case law on this kind of thing. I am not a lawyer, but the legal analysts that I really like and respect, like Mark Levin and others, Andy McCarthy, they're like, no, it doesn't apply here because the 14th Amendment does not specifically call out the president. Everywhere else in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, it will specifically say the founders specifically identify the president when they intend to have something apply to the president. All the 14th Amendment says is uh, high officials. That's it. So they deliberately leave it open to interpretation. So again, this is going to land in the Supreme Court's lap and they hate it. They hate this stuff. They hate getting political, but they're going to have to decide all this because the left is cheating via the law. And the ultimate arbiter of the law is the U.S. Supreme Court. So this, along with a bunch of other uh, cases like the J6 case, the obstruction of an official proceeding stuff, all of that is going straight up to the Supreme Court. And this case will not be the last. You know it, and it makes them want to tear their hair out. What the Colorado Supreme Court did... Seven justices, four of them, it was a 4-3 vote, so four unelected uh, men and women in robes. And by the way, if you haven't seen them, they are exactly what you think they would look like, okay? They look like the crazy communist judge in his New York fraud trial. They, They all look exactly the same. They're out of central casting for Marxists. So you had four of the seven say... Trump, we're bouncing Trump from the primary uh, ballot, okay? So what you have here, and Donald Trump has said he's appealing it to the Supreme Court, so it's going there, and I hope and pray that the Supreme Court bounces this immediately because it is so unconstitutional. On its face, it's unconstitutional. They want to prevent you from having the right and the ability to vote for whomever you want. And so they're, they're seeking to bounce the leading candidate for president. They're getting more panicked because Trump's poll numbers are like off the charts. And this is going to feed into a bigger surge for Donald Trump because people see this now for what it is. And you don't have to be a Trump loyalist like me and you and so many others to see what it is. You got independents and Democrats now going, what the hell is this? You're going to kick Donald Trump off the ballot? Now, this is still ongoing in a number of states. I think Michigan, the state Supreme Courts across the country have bounced this, but the left keeps coming back like they always do. Once a cheater, always a cheater. The left keeps coming back and reintroducing this because they never give up, guys. Ever. They are at war 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They never stop. So the Supreme Court in a certain state bounces it. They come back with a different angle. Here in the state of Colorado, this particular case was funded and brought by a group funded and brought by George Soros. 
So you see what we're talking about here. The other side has endless resources to keep coming at these Supreme Courts, to keep going through the judicial system until they get the judge they want, the Supreme Court decision they want. They keep going. So a lot of this is still percolating in the system, including the state of California, which just brought it yesterday. They want to dump Trump off the ballot in the state of California. Now, he's not going to win California, but that's not the point, guys. The point is, this is waging war against the Constitution, against our electoral system, and they have been doing this forever. Just look at 2020. Now we're getting more and more information and evidence in Georgia and elsewhere about the rigged election. Tens of thousands of ballots that never should have been counted uh, because they were completely off the rails and they were counted anyway, and other ballots that should have been counted weren't. Three years later, now we're getting the evidence. It's a little late, and they know it's a little late. They don't care. They are at war with the system. Do you think the Colorado Supreme Court cares if the Supreme Court bounces this? Of course not. The whole point is to tear down the system and, and, and chip away at the confidence that we have in it and the authority that the system has. They don't care if this is bounced. It used to be that Supreme Court justices in a state would think about, gosh, golly, if we vote this way, if we hand down this decision and the Supreme Court throws it out, we're going to look really bad, right? So we better hew to the law. They do not think that way anymore, guys. You are dealing with revolutionaries. They don't care. And it's worse than that because they are at war and they want to overthrow the system. So they taunt us with stuff like this. All right, when we come back, there's much more on this that I want to get to here and a little bit on illegal immigration because, again, it's all of a piece, the destruction of the country. We're coming right back. All right, welcome back. The communists don't even pretend to disguise the revolution anymore. It's all like right out there in the open, right in our face. I mean, you have institutions like the Colorado Supreme Court that are putting their brazen communist revolution, disrespect for the system, destruction of the system right in our faces. They absolutely don't care. The people who are screaming the loudest about threats to democracy are the actual threats to democracy. They are masters of projection, accusing our side of what they themselves are guilty of. It happens around the clock all day. If you want to know what they're doing, just look at what they're accusing Trump of or what they're accusing the Republicans or you and me of doing. That is exactly what they themselves are guilty of. What the Supreme Court in Colorado did is an actual attack on democracy, an un-American, unconstitutional, and unprecedented decision that these four unelected Democrat judges inflicted on the entire country. Colorado was pretty blue, but to disenfranchise the Trump voters in that state and others who haven't made up their mind, they don't care. This is all about eliminating Donald Trump 
from the presidential race, marginalizing him. This is the only way they can do it. They are cheating through uh, all kinds of means, as we saw in 2020. What do you think the virus was? What do you think the shutting down of the global economy was? What do you think burning down America with Antifa and Black Lives Matter were? What about, what about the uh, rigging of the election? What do you think January 6th was? These are all forms of cheating. Once a cheater, always a cheater. The system and the country are hanging by a thread, guys. But a couple of final points on this uh, before I want to address illegal immigration, too. Vivek Ramaswamy put out a tweet uh, the other night when this decision came down, and he said, quote, I pledge to withdraw from the Colorado GOP primary unless Trump is also allowed to be on the state's ballot. And I demand that Ron DeSantis, Chris Christie, and Nikki Haley do the same immediately, or else they are tacitly endorsing this illegal maneuver, which will have disastrous consequences for our country. And then he goes on, it was a long tweet, but good for Vivek, because this is how it's done. You stand up, yes, you're in the same race with Donald Trump, and yes, Trump is creaming you and everybody else. But you stand up for the system. You stand up for the Constitution, the rule of law. I mean, if your campaign is all about bringing the country back to those fundamental principles and ridding us of this deep, profound corruption, well, then you have to stand up for the the crimes being committed against Donald Trump. And if you don't and you won't and you're unwilling to, then get out. Get out because you don't understand what time it is or you do and you don't care because you want to be the Republican nominee. Just get out. We have no time for you or your nonsense or your, your, your uh, water carrying for the system. No time for you. Get out. Meanwhile, yesterday, Governor DeSantis, who's been an extraordinary governor, and I like him very much. But he was on some network and he refused to condemn what the Colorado Supreme Court did and what Vivek did to his great credit. Governor DeSantis wouldn't do it. And the others like Nikki Haley, like, you know, that they stand up against it, but they, you know, you know that they don't really mean it. Vivek really means it. But the others don't because they are a product of the system. Nikki Haley is an establishment mouthpiece for the consultant class, the donor class, the uni party, the globalists. You think she's going to take a strong stand on this? She says what she needs to say, and then she shuts up. That's not what's required in this moment to save the country, guys. Okay? We need fighters. We need fighters who understand it, who get it, and who are not in on it. And that excludes, I'm sorry to say, but all of these other Republicans running for the presidency, it excludes all of them, except for Trump and Vivek, because they get it, they're not in on it, and they have the strength to fight it. All of these leftists running around, talking about the need to save democracy, you know what it means to them? 
It means blocking your political opponents from being on the ballot because you got to cheat that way. It means arresting and locking up your political opponents like they're trying to do to Trump and the January Sixers and anybody else that they can just drum up a pretext for. And it means inciting all kinds of crazy people to violent action against them by claiming that they are the new incarnations of Adolf Hitler. They're invoking Hitler now like crazy. Trump is Hitler. Trying to freak people out, make them scared of Trump. Nobody is afraid of Trump. Okay, they should all be. (laughs) Okay, because when he is reelected, retribution is coming. And rightfully so for all of their crimes against him and the rest of us. But everybody knows they've just seen four years of Donald Trump. They know who he is. They kind of like him, except for the haters. And they know what he can deliver. Booming economy, enforced border, and world peace. That is sounding increasingly good to more and more people, which is why Trump's numbers are climbing and climbing. And after this latest stunt from the Colorado Supreme Court, you can expect those numbers to climb even more. You know, the left is doing the near impossible when all of this started in 2015 and Trump came down the escalator. He's a tough son of a gun. And the left has done the near impossible by turning Donald Trump into a sympathetic figure. People now feel sorry for him. People that didn't like him before. People who may have found him annoying or whatever, didn't like his tweets. Now they're looking at him going, God, how is this man still standing? After everything they are putting him through over bogus BS, this man is really being put through the ringer. They have thrown the kitchen sink at him. And I kind of admire him now for putting up with it all, fighting back and still standing. There are so many people thinking that way now, guys. In fact, I'll I'll share a quick little story. I was in New York City. This was probably about three weeks ago. And I went into my local Dwayne Reed Walgreens drugstore. And there's a young Latina woman in there. I won't name her. And because most things in Manhattan uh, drugstores are under lock and key, you have to go find an employee to unlock the deodorant. You can't just take it off the shelf. So I go track her down and she comes over. She gives me a little hug and she gives me what I need. And I'm like, everything is just locked down. And she was like, Monica, we absolutely hate it because we're trying to do our other work. But now we've got to spend all of our time unlocking these glass cabinets and getting the customers what they want. We hate it. The customers hate it. It slows them down. New York's a very fast-paced city, guys, right? You go in for a deodorant, you want to grab the deodorant, pay, and get out. Now you got to find somebody, they got to unlock it, you got to choose. It's a mess because of the retail theft, the organized crime. So we were talking and she didn't know who I was, even though we've been friendly over the years. She doesn't know what I do for a living. And she leaned into me and she said, I don't know what you think about Joe Biden. (laughs) And I, I didn't stop her. She said, but I voted for him last time and I made a huge mistake. And she said, never again. And then she leaned in and whispered to me, next time I'm voting for Trump. 
And I said, why are you whispering? And she said, because it's New York City and I don't know how you vote. And I said, let me tell you something. I love Donald Trump so much that I moved to Washington and worked for him at the Treasury Department for two years. And I will do the same when he is reelected. And she like lit up. She's like, do you know him? And I was like, yeah, I, I do. And she was just like all over me. I can't wait to vote for Trump. He was an amazing president. We didn't have any of this when he was president. I share this story because there are millions of people like this young Latina woman in New York City who is voting for Trump. And that is why they are absolutely terrified. They're terrified. And they're pulling out all the stops. This unconstitutional lawfare is just one piece of the puzzle. They're going to have a lot more coming at us next year. And you know that to be true. So fortify, guys, fortify whatever that means to you and your family brace for next year. Illegal immigration. I just want to hit on this because uh, before we hit the break and talk to Raymond Arroyo and have a little Christmas fun, um, we saw this week another record broken. From December 1st to December 17th, and today is December 21st, so through December 17th, a record-breaking 167,000 illegals have come across the border and engaged with Border Patrol. Just in the first 17 days of this month. Earlier this week, we had another record-breaking day 12,600 illegals in one day. Barack Obama's uh, Homeland Security Secretary, Jay Johnson, back in 2019, was talking about how, hey man, if we had 1,000 illegals coming across the border, engaging with Border Patrol, that was a crisis. Now we have over 12 times that number, 12,600 in just one day coming across the border. And those are the ones that are engaging with Border Patrol. So you can imagine the number is higher because there are so many that just come across the border and melt into the country. No contact with Border Patrol. This is completely unsustainable and has been over the last three months. But again, guys, this is all of a piece. This invasion that Biden and the left is allowing to happen is of a piece with what we were just talking about with the Colorado Supreme Court and the weaponization of the court system and the weaponization of DOJ and FBI and the economic Marxism and the cultural Marxism. It's all working together to destroy the country. This is a deliberate destruction of America, and they've put it on steroids because Trump wasn't supposed to win in 2016. It was supposed to be Hillary, who after eight years of Obama was going to keep the whole thing right on track, and it went off the rails because Trump won in 2016. And he brought America back. He put America first and they, and was bringing peace around the world and they cannot have that. So after 2016, they vowed never again because they had to keep their great reset uh, back on track. And so this is why you saw the horrors of 2020 
And this is why we're going to have more horrors in 2024. This is what I mean about fortify and, and secure your base with your family, your home, your spiritual faith, whatever it's going to take, because I don't know what's going to happen next year. I have no idea. But all I know is it's going to be bad. The invasion of our country continues. This is completely off the charts. And, you know, you've got Democrats, you've got Eric Adams, you've got the governor of Massachusetts, you've got the governor of New York, you've got the mayor of Chicago, who is a straight up communist. Um, You've got Arizona's governor, uh, the illegitimate Katie Hobbs. That election was also stolen from our friend Carrie Lake, um, from the guy who was running for attorney general, Abe Hamaday, who we're going to talk to in the new year because he's running for Congress in Arizona. Those elections were all stolen, but you've got the illegitimate uh, governor of Arizona deploying the National Guard now to the border, saying what all these Democrats are saying, which is, oh, Biden, the federal government, they're not doing their job securing the border. Well, I die. But the only reason that they're doing this with the National Guard and the rest of it is because next year is an election year. And they're looking at these numbers. The economy is the number one issue. The number two issue is the border and illegal immigration. And they cannot then keep going like this because they want their party to survive. And they're looking at a wipeout next year. Again, if these elections are clean. So now these Democrats are like, oh, gosh, golly, we've got a problem. Well, yeah. It's called the deliberate invasion of the country, the deliberate overwhelming of our systems, Cloward and Piven. In order to destroy America, you overwhelm her systems. That's what the out-of-control spending is. That's what the cities out-of-control are with the chaos and, and the crime in the streets. This is what uh, the fentanyl crisis is. This, is. this is what the wide open border is all about. It is all about overwhelming America's systems in order to destroy America. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. This is what this program is all about, bringing you the absolute truth. All right, let's hit another quick break. When we come back, we're going to switch gears and lighten it up. I know today was a really heavy show, and we're going into Christmas, so I want to lighten things up, talk a little bit about uh, Raymond's new Christmas album, which is so amazing, all the Christmas uh, classics. We're going to get in the mood Switch gears, lighten it up, and have a little fun. So sit tight. Well, I've been so excited for this conversation for quite a while because we are in the holidays and I really want to have some fun. We cover so many heavy things on this show because we have to, because our our entire way of life, our country, our culture, everything is hanging by a thread. So we've got to deal with the heavy stuff. Um, But we are in the holiday season and we can't be heavy all the time. And what I really wanted to do was have some fun and lighten things up a bit with our good friend, Raymond Arroyo. Raymond is a Fox News contributor. And now, and I'm, I'm so delighted to learn that he is, first of all, Raymond, and you see him all the time on Laura Ingram's show on Fox and, and elsewhere on Fox. And you know that he's a brilliant mind and a very funny guy. I mean, 
some of the best comedic timing I've ever seen. I was telling Raymond before we came to air today that sometimes I'm watching him with Laura Ingram and I'm alone in my apartment and I will literally laugh out loud at what he says. He is a a brilliant uh, comedian, but he's also a wise person. And on top of all of that, he's a decent human being. And on top of all of that, he is an extremely talented musician, singer, and artist. He's got a brand new album out just in time for the holidays. It's called Raymond Arroyo Christmas Merry and Bright, which is zoomed to the top five on Billboard seasonal and jazz charts, which is a huge accomplishment, as well as top 10 on Amazon's music chart, which is also a major accomplishment. This album is a new holiday staple. You are going to love it for yourself and your family. Raymond has also been traveling all across the country in support of the album with big band concerts, which are just amazing. All information can be found at RaymondArroyoChristmas.com. And Raymond joins us now. Hi, my friend. Thank you for having me on. Merry Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas to you, too. It's great to have you back once again. We had you here last year around Christmas time uh, with your new book at the time called The Wise Men Who Found Christmas. And I'm always, you know, thinking about interesting guests for the holiday season. Of course, you were at the top of my list. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, it, when we were doing this album of years, for many years, Monica, people, you know, as you said, they know me from TV. They know my books. They don't know about this part of me. And uh, for many years on my Christmas specials on EWTN, I have a show I've had there for many years. Uh, I've sung with Johnny Mathis and Aaron Neville and Andy Williams, God rest his soul, uh, some incredible people. And a record producer heard those Christmas specials and asked me if I would be interested in doing a Christmas album. And of course, my first response was no, uh, you know, because I know what it takes to do one of these things. I know what it takes to do one track, much less 12 or 13. So I said, OK, well, let me think about this. And I decided to pull all of the, the songs, my favorite Christmas songs, classics and carols and contemporary classics. And I pulled the lyrics and then I started doing deep research as if I were almost you know, writing a book on this. And did a deep dive into all these songs. And what I discovered, Monica, was our expectations, our understandings of so many of these songs are wrong. They are not what you imagine. Uh, The context, the origins of these songs uh, led me in a very different direction and shed new light upon the songs I'd taken for granted. And I love Christmas. Who doesn't love Christmas music? I mean, everybody loves Christmas music. And, you know, I tell audiences, look. This is the only genre of music, the only one that is eternal. Your great-grandparents sang these songs, you are singing these songs, and your children's children will be singing these songs. They, they, they are timeless. There's no other genre like it. Not rock, not country, not rap, God help us, nothing, nothing else. Just this Christmas canon. So I thought, let's spend the time getting it right, finding out what these songs were really intended to be, and then... Kevin Koska, who arranged The Greatest Showman, uh, Jungle Book for Disney, The Lion King, uh, The Dark Knight. He's he's an incredible orchestrator and arranger. But I found out Kevin Koska's background was in big band orchestration. So Kevin did these amazing 12 orchestrations. When my guys in the band first saw them, first saw the sheet music, 
one of the guys who's probably in his late 60s, he said, I got to tell you, I love these arrangements. This is old school stuff. And it brought a smile to my face because it, I've gotten so many letters and so many people have come up to me after concerts and said, uh, it feels like it's it's I've had this album forever, but it, it's brand new. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, that's what we wanted. Yeah. It's a classic feel. It's a classic big band sound, which is what I think these songs demand. But the approach is entirely new. And I and love that. It, and that's why I think it's connecting with people. Well, absolutely, Raymond, because these are old holiday standards. They're classics, but they're done in a way that feels fresh but still with the big band sound. And maybe it's because nobody is doing big band music anymore. Nobody. Um, and, and so for you to well, come... It's expensive. You know, it's expensive. Yes. It's hard. And the truth is you can't find people who play it. But I live in New Orleans. Uh, my producer wisely, you know, originally we were going to do this in L.A. And she said, well, why don't we do it in New Orleans? Because you've got such amazing musicians there. And what I realized is many of these guys... In, in this band, we call them the NOLA players. Uh, they've been playing together for 20 or 30 years. And some of them went to high school, but went to the same high school I went to. So there was an instant kind of brotherhood and familiarity. You can't fake that, Monica. And so much of what we hear, and, and I won't mention anybody else, but even the, uh, there was a new Christmas album somebody sent me the other day. And it's so synthetic and fake you know, it, it's it's all synthesized instruments, and it's a voice that's been, you know, they've auto-tuned it to death, and it, it's just very sad, actually. But there's nothing human there. What I love about this album, The Christmas, Merry and Bright, we got the 20 pieces in the room with me. We've, we've moved into a little theater in New Orleans to do it because we couldn't fit in a recording studio. Uh, we did all of the tracks together live. I didn't pre-record them, or they didn't pre-record their track, and then I went in and laid it over later. We did it together, and that lends itself a kind of communication and a vibe and a um, a brotherhood. You feel the joy on these tracks, and that was something we couldn't plan. You don't anticipate, and you only get when you record it live. And the greats, Nat King Cole, Sinatra, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, all of those albums were recorded live with the band in the room. Now I realize why. Yes, yes, exactly right. We, and you see the old footage of Tony Bennett or Frank Sinatra, and they're there with their sleeves rolled up, and maybe Sinatra right. has his jaunty fedora, as you are sporting on the album cover. Very chic, <laughs> very dapper of you. Um, yeah, and they're, they're just, they're all working together, and they're reading each other's energy. And that's so critical to having a song truly, truly, gel well you know and, and when you're doing an up-tempo when you're doing a, a you know a, a a quick arrangement uh and you've got 20 pieces roaring at you there are little you know sinatra used to say when you're singing you're you're dodging the you're dodging the raindrops to me it's like dodging thunderclaps because you know the the lightning striking you have to get your bit in carry your little note over and then get out of the way that timing, you only really feel when everybody does it together. You can't rehearse it. I mean, I knew these songs backwards and forwards when I went in, but it changed when you get with the band because I, I you know, somebody asked me, what is it like performing with a band like that? It, it's like being a surfer. You get the surfboard, you jump on their musical wave and you go and you either keep up with them and you ride it and bend your performance or you're not going to be together. So it's a it's kind of fascinating. It's a it's a cool and look, I've sung with orchestras before. 
Uh, but it, this is very different. A big band is a very different animal. It, it just it, is. It truly is. And I've always been a real big band aficionado. I mean, really, really big time. In fact, my high school, uh, one year, every year they did a talent, uh, a talent show. And one year I grabbed two of my friends and we were the Andrews sisters. And we sang. <laughs> And we sang for the crowd and we dressed the part. So, I mean, I was born in the wrong era. I should have been born in the 1940s and and 50s and all of that because I love the whole culture and the whole musical style, which you have so brilliantly recaptured here. Um, Something that you just said, because I'm not not a musician, so I I appreciate well-done music like this, but I, I don't know the technical aspects. One thing that you just said, Raymond, I just want to follow on. So when you say that when you've got the orchestra in front of you, it's like surfing. Um, obviously, your ear is attuned to all of the parts coming in, right? The brass and then the winds and the percussion, yeah. you're, you're attuned to it. But are you saying that the vocal doesn't lead the song, that the band, the, the actual music leads the song and then the vocal well, comes next? It's like a dance, Monica. It's you know, and you you can't step on each other's feet. It, it's um, th- there are in these complex arrangements. You know, when you've got twenty pieces, there are things that come in and weave together, and then everybody kind of builds up to a crescendo, and then then they all go away, and you jump in. Well, if you jump in too late or you jump in too early, you ruin the moment. So it's that timing. It's timing. It's approach, and really, what is the overall song about? And uh, look, I'll give you all a couple of, of, of insights. One, one sacred, one profane. Here's the profane one. Um, when I looked into Jingle Bells, now this is a song we all think we know. How many times have you heard Jingle Bells, Monica? I yeah, mean, a million. Maybe more. <laughs> and, you know, when we think, oh, it's about Jingle Bells, it's Christmassy, it's kids in the snow. No, it's not what it's about at all. When I dug into it, I realized it was written by a guy named James Lord Pierpont. This was J.P. Morgan's uh, – J.P. Morgan was his nephew, and James Lord Pierpont wrote the song in a tavern in Medford, Massachusetts. Now, Medford was known for a couple of things. When it would snow, they would drag race right down Salem Street in the middle of town. They were known for rum production, so there was a lot of rum consumed, particularly in the winter. He wrote this thing at a tavern, and he was known as something of – a, a skirt chaser. Uh, there wasn't a woman he saw that he didn't pursue. And he abandoned his wife and kids. He ended up marrying the mayor of Savannah's daughter. But I digress. When you break the song down, when you read the lyrics and consider that context, you realize Jingle Bells, first of all, is not a Christmas song at all. It is really a drag racing, girl chasing drinking song. That's what it is. And if you don't believe me, the third stanza, with no, which nobody ever sings, I, I include in the concert and on the album. It, the, the lyric goes, now the ground is white. Go it while you're young. Take the girls tonight and sing this slaying song. It's about getting girls alone in, in open sleighs in the dark. You need the jingle bells because you don't want to run into another uh, uh, sleigh. And there were no headlights in 1853 when this was written. So it's a very it's a very <laughs> different uh, understanding. So our, our version of it kevin Koska gave me this kind of big band louis prima style you know uh wild arrangement that is a little randy around the edges and that is such a propulsive dynamic moving the uh, uh arrangement you really have to you know get your shots in and jump out of the way because the band is coming oh yeah and, uh, that, i was uh, dancing that, that to was that real, 
and you can see it if you go to RaymondArroyoChristmas.com, there's a trailer of the making of the album. You'll see what I mean. And you kind of just get swept up in the spirit of it. It does things to you when you're, you know, when you've got 20 pieces of guys all committed to this one uh, piece of music. Uh, it changes everything. Our Their approach changed. My approach changed. And when I gave them the backstory, it transformed the way they played this song. It's just, I mean, it's got such a driving beat. And all of these songs, again, you think you know Joy to the World. You think you know I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. You think you know oh. the first Noel. But you don't until you hear your versions. I mean, did well, you find, yeah, go ahead, Raymond. Go ahead. Well, I took care, you know, I, you mentioned it a moment ago. You said you were born in the wrong time. I was too. Look, I saw Sinatra 30 times in concert. I saw Ella Fitzgerald and Sarah Vaughan live. I, I feel blessed to have had that kind of genius in front of my my eyes and sometimes literally right in front of me unimpeded for hours when you're in the company of that kind of gigantic talent the care that sinatra took with a lyric his understanding as an actor was profound and i approach all of these songs in that way, not as Sinatra. I, I, I don't I'm not a big fan of these tribute shows. I don't like impressions and, you know, people doing, you know, trying to recreate Elvis or Sinatra or whoever. Uh, I, but but there's something to be learned in the approach. And the thing to learn is his amazing phrasing, his understanding of a lyric and how everything, his performance, the orchestration, everything was bent to a deeper appreciation and almost a romantic notion of what these songs really are. And that's how I approach this whole Christmas canon. And if we have time, I do want to tell you about the backstory of I Heard the Bells. Please. Which is a song a lot of people might know, but I'll bet you don't know anything about it. No, I don't. So please share. Yeah, it's such a cool song. You know, uh, and it, it actually was written by Longfellow, the great American poet, again, in Massachusetts, this time Cambridge. Um, it, it was 1863. And uh, that same year, Longfellow and his wife were relaxing one afternoon. She was reading to him, which I guess was like radio or TV at the time. Somebody read you a book. And he was napping on the couch. She was by the fire. And her dress caught fire. All the petticoats went up in flames. He tried to put the fire out, ended up burning the side of his face, which is why he wore a beard for the remainder of his life, because he was scarred up on the, on the side of his face. He couldn't save her. She died. Mm. Then... The Civil War is going on. His oldest son leaves the house one day, signs up with the Union Army. And on Christmas Eve, Longfellow has to go collect his son at the train depot, bring him home. He's been shot through the shoulder and is nearly paralyzed. And he's very depressed. And he's lost hope. And he sits down on Christmas morning and he hears the bells of the church toll at the end of the block in his neighborhood. And he writes the poem, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And he goes on and on. And then many years later, Johnny Marks set it to music. Johnny Marks wrote um, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, by the way. Uh, he sets it to music. And it is such a beautiful, moving, sweet song about finding hope and Christmas hope on the far side of tragedy. And I thought, wow, this time of year, at this moment in our existence, we need that song. So we revived it, uh, did it in a very sweet fashion. And uh, and I even added a fourth verse, which I took from his poem. And we kind of tacked it on to the end of the song, which I think is really sweet and, and even more hopeful than the original. 
Does that, knowing the backstory like that, that really must inform how you interpret the song and then how you deliver the vocal on the song. And I know Sinatra did the same homework, so did Tony Bennett. They all understood what the song was really all about. And, you know, I think a lot of artists today just sort of take the top line uh, version. They can't sort of be bothered. They just, they execute and they might execute very well, but the, the depth of, the, of emotion and understanding and meaning, which is a very subliminal kind of signal when you're listening to music, um, yeah. that, that part of it is missing in a lot of contemporary music, but you've delivered it here. Well, it's human. You know, yeah. we are, we are, I think we are starved for humanity. It's why I wanted to do a humanly produced album. And what I mean by that is, You know, the word inspiration comes from drawing breath in and expelling breath. In the Gospels, what's the first thing you hear in the Bible? Very first thing, God breathed into Moses, uh, breathed into Abraham. He breathed into Eve. You know, that that notion of breath is really powerful. Um, I think there's something sacred in it. So when you have that kind of unified breath um, trying to impart something, it, it communicates without communicating. It touches you in a way you don't expect. And so, yeah, I, I think we have to be, you have to be deliberate, particularly when you're talking about great works of art like this. I mean, some of these songs are so precious. Um, uh, you know, Silent Night and Hark the Herald Angels Sing is such a spectacular song about the wonder, the thrill of God made man. And we take that for granted. Oh, yeah, here, here comes the kid again. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, here come the wise men. That's not, no, stop for a second. You take a deep breath and think about that. That's what Hark the Herald Angels Sing is is intended to do. I mean, there's a great lyric, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Well, in our version, it's a big band. You can hear the angels swooping in and out. Uh, it, it, it It's arresting. It's dynamic. That's what these songs were meant to be, exciting to capture the thrill of God among us. And that's what Christmas is here for. So I wanted to take that on the road, which we've done. Uh, the Christmas Merry and Bright Tour has just been amazing uh, because you have a big band with the audience and 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 the vocalist. And you're having a moment together and you're you're reminding each other what it means to be human, what it means to be be um, uh, an American at this moment and reminding yourself why we celebrate Christmas in a profound way we can't even give words to. It's just, it's a sensation, it's a belief, it's a feeling, but uh, it's deeper than that. There's history attached to it. And uh, that's why I thought, let's take this on the road. We're only doing five dates. Jose Feliciano's with me on some of them. And Jose's on the album as well, which is such a Tell us how he got involved because he is such a legend. Oh my gosh. Well, look, when you think about Christmas songs, there's really a, a, there, there's a king and queen of Christmas. You got Mariah, Mariah Carey is the queen, and clearly <laughs> Jose Feliciano is the king. Yes, Feliz Navidad is the ultimate earworm at Christmas time. You can't escape it. It's in every mall. It's on rickshaws in New York City. Uh, you, you you walk into the dentist's office. There's Feliz Navidad. Um, but years ago, Monica, I had interviewed uh, Jose maybe eleven or twelve years ago for a, a Christmas special. And I asked him about the origins of the song. He wrote it under duress. His uh, producer, Rick Gerard, in 1970 said, we're recording this Christmas album. We need something original. They didn't have anything original. And he was reluctant to write anything because he thought he literally told the guy, look, you've got Irving Berlin and you've got Brenda Lee. What do you need me for? Um, But 
his producer persisted and said, look, go write a Christmas song, make it original, make it personal, write about something, you know. So he went in the other room and in 10 minutes, 10 minutes wrote Feliz Navidad. It's a very simple little tune. But I said, Jose, what was in your mind when you wrote it? He said, I was thinking of those Christmas Eves in Puerto Rico, sitting on the beach, singing with my my family, my mom and dad, my brothers, beating on little tin cans and instruments we could find and singing Spanish carols. Mm. So that's what was in his head. Now, I've never seen that image or even thought of that when hearing Feliz Navidad. But when I decided to do this album, I said, I need Jose to come do this with me. But I, we need a new arrangement of Feliz Navidad. I didn't want to do it with the big kind of mariachi. I didn't want to do that. I, I said, Jose, what if we do a very gentle bossa nova open of Feliz Navidad, like brothers sitting on the shores of Puerto Rico, singing together, welcoming Christmas? He loved the idea. And I mean, it, it brought tears to my eyes when he agreed. Not only did he love the idea, he agreed to come on, play and sing on the track, which we we did. And it's just and it turned into this. Very, we have horns at the end. It turns into a celebration. But it really is like two brothers sitting on the on the beach and him. He plays in, you know, his acoustic guitar, flamenco style, getting us in. He's got a beautiful bridge on it. Um, it's spectacular. But I love it. It's a. You know, I, I had a musician call me the other day and said, I just heard you, Feliz Navidad. It's so tender and sweet. And again, you, you, you mentioned it a moment ago. There are intangibles here. You can't quite understand. Why is it striking me that way? Why am I getting that feeling? Well, it's because of the understanding that went into making it and the heart that the two of us brought to it um, and the common purpose. Oh, yes. I mean, it's it's so beautifully rendered, the entire album, and your voice is like velvet. It's, it really is. The, the vocals are absolutely gorgeous, and the orchestrations are so rich and luscious, like, like a velvet tapestry is what is the visual I got as I was listening to a lot of these songs. And I do appreciate, Raymond, that you have touched upon the most important reason for this album, which is the reason for the season – what yeah. we are actually celebrating in the Christmas holidays and Christmas Day, with the, which is the birth of Jesus Christ. How do yeah. you stay focused on that? Well, look, that's, I mean, Christmas music, the reason is it is eternal. I guess this is the big uh, cliffhanger from the very start of our conversation. The reason that this music is eternal, the reason that generations sing the same songs with the same lyrics and the same meter is because these songs touch the divine. They are wrapped up in the birth of God, the birth of Jesus Christ as a, as a little baby in Bethlehem more than 2,000 years ago. It is that awe-striking, awesome moment that all of these singers and composers were reaching for, trying to understand, grasp, and bring their point of view and feeling to. Look, there's a song I didn't record, but I did a lot of research on so many. I did like 50 Christmas songs I did research on. Um, and one of them was uh, O Little Town of Bethlehem, which was written by a pastor in New York. I think he was an Episcopal pastor. And he goes to the Holy Land, gets a donkey, and goes to all these holy sites where Jesus is born, the the Church of the Annunciation. He sees and touches these places, and he's so overwhelmed that when he gets home, he begins to write a little poem about it. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. You know, uh, and, and that song, 
again, it comes from a real place. It's not just somebody writing about something that was far away. It was something he had experienced. And that's what you, you realize all of these songs are about. You know, Christmas time is here. That wonderful. We recorded this on the album from the Peanut special from the Charlie Brown Christmas. That was a song that almost wasn't. Lee Mendelson, who was the producer of uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, uh, hired Vince Guaraldi, the jazz musician, to write interstitial music for the special. And two weeks before they went to air, Lee Mendelson said, I love this little patch of music here, Vince. Why don't you write a lyric to it? He said, I don't write lyrics. I don't even know what you're talking about. And and he played it for him. And he said, no, but if you can find a lyricist, go do it. Lee Mendelson went and tried to find a lyricist. Johnny Mercer and, and Johnny Mandel, he couldn't find anybody to write lyrics for it. So Lee Mendelson, the producer of Charlie Brown Christmas, goes home and writes his own lyrics to this little bit of melody on his kitchen table. Mm. And he brings it to, to Goraldi, who records it with the children's choir, and they drop it into the show a week before they went to air. And CBS hated it. They hated the special. They called it the animation slow. They hated the jazz music, thought it was too movie, move, uh, too uh, moody and, and uh, d- divorced from Christmas. And worse, they hated the Bible references at the end. And one of those cut out. Lee Mendelssohn fought for all three. He demanded that they leave the, the Bible uh, coda in where Linus you know, recites Luke's gospel about the coming of the Christ child. Uh, they left the jazz music in. And of course, the animation is today one of the most revered classics in American culture. But all of that would have been lost, but for Lee Mendelssohn. And so we do that song and I capture all of that. And the the the, the orchestration is kind of bittersweet, but but touching. Um, and, and all these songs, they just Christmas touches the eternal because it touches the birth of Christ. And I, I acknowledge that freely. Uh, we do it in the live show because it's reality. It's reality. Well, the album is certainly, in addition to being absolutely beautiful, as I said, is focused on that, uh, for sure. And that comes across in the vocal, it comes across in the choice of, you know, the song selections for this album. It's just a lovely and beautiful album. And I am so proud of you. I did not realize, and I think most people do not realize, that you started as a theater kid, singing and dancing. So all of this comes so naturally to you. And you're so extraordinarily talented. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you so much for the time. And look, I am I'm bowled over. It's an amazing thing. You you know, singing is such a delicate art, Monica, and you're putting your heart out because unlike doing, you know, appearing in news or or writing an article or even a book, those are things that are almost separate from you. They're 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 far and Mm -hmm. apart from you personally and certainly far from your feelings and what you believe most and what you hold most dear. When you're singing, all of that is exposed. So it's kind of a, it's a scary thing to kind of do uh, and give voice to, but it's been such a joy to have people embrace it in such a way and make those songs and our rendition of them a part of their holidays. When I hear people say, I'm playing this as I decorate my tree, I'm playing this as I cook my Thanksgiving dinner, I'm playing this as I get my Christmas presents wrapped, that to me 
is just what we made it for, mm-hmm. to weave into the holidays and to become part of people's traditions and remind them of why all of this matters. Yeah, And I, hopefully give them a merry and bright Christmas. And, and inspire them as well. And, you know, it's one thing to do, you know, an interview on Fox News, as you and I do all the time. Yep. That's sort of ephemeral. It's temporary. You do it and people think, oh, that was great or that was that. And then two minutes later, they've forgotten that you've done it uh, versus something like this, which is going to last forever and be a part of so many families' traditions. Congratulations, Raymond. Beautifully done. Tell everybody where they can get the album. Oh, yeah. Look, you can get it anywhere you get your music. Amazon Music, uh, Apple, uh, iTunes, uh, Spotify, Pandora. We're on all of those services. But go to RaymondArroyoChristmas.com. Uh, that has all the links to the various retailers. Of course, Amazon Barnes & Noble is selling it. Uh, I mean, it's like the, one of the top albums on Barnes & Noble. Uh, it, it's been amazing. And I think people are hungry, Monica. They are hungry for joy. They are hungry for, for merriment. And something beyond the kind of brittle, passing, superficial face of Christmas that is being offered to them. And and that's what I, I think our album represents more than anything else. The pull of nostalgia is very powerful. And I think certainly in this day and age where we have so much evil right up in our face yeah. and the country is hanging by a thread, I think people want to reach back to what was perceived as a simpler, more decent time in America and in our lives. And this album certainly delivers it. Raymond Arroyo, Christmas, Merry and Bright. Go to RaymondArroyoChristmas.com all the links are there all the information is there download it now there's also old school cds if you prefer a cd version of the album that's also available but please go get it and brighten up your holidays raymond thank you so much merry christmas thank you monica merry christmas and blessed christmas to all your audience thank you Okay, another big show done. I want to thank you guys so much for being here today and always also for checking out our great sponsors. We all really appreciate that. I want you to have a lovely and blessed Christmas weekend, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day. Really, I hope that you can celebrate with those that you really care about, your friends, your family, your loved ones. Just really enjoy it um, because we never know what's coming around the corner, right? So this Christmas, make it really special. God bless you guys. I'm so grateful for all of you. I want to say next week, we will be here with a big conversation with Lee Strobel, Is God Real? And we're going to talk to the one and only Ben Stein about President Nixon, about his acting career, about the American economy under Joe Biden. We're going to have so much fun next week. So I hope you'll join me here for those shows. All right. I will see you right back here next week after Christmas, the day after Christmas. So I will see you then. God bless. This episode of the Monica Crowley podcast was produced by Bayhockle Entertainment, LLC.